0: Thank you, Alan. I've seen those commercials on TV. Jesus, He gets us, and I guess what pops in my head is, Jesus, do we get Him? That's right. So we're going to be taking a look at some of this teaching this morning from Luke the tenth chapter. Steve already preached my sermon in the call to worship. But that's okay. We'll preach it again. Luke chapter 10. And we're going to be down in verse 25. Those of you in this service will probably more readily recall what I'm about to talk about than those in the second service. Because it happened 25 years ago. But 25 years ago in 1998 it was billed as the great final episode of the show That was about nothing. The show's name was Seinfeld. Anybody here watch that? Well, Seinfeld had run for nine years. The final program was was to cause it to go out with a shout. And to say it was disappointing to many would be a gross understatement. It ended with all the excitement of Y2K. I mean, it was a first-class fizzle. People were upset. It might have been more profound than you thought, though. And I don't know if you remember it or not. Jerry Seinfeld, in the final episode, had received a contract from NBC to do a sitcom, and so the network was flying Jerry and his friends, Elaine, Kramer, and George, to Paris. Well, there were plane problems, and the four wound up in Lakeland, Massachusetts, waiting to get... To Paris, And so, to kill some time, they were just wandering through this quaint little New England town. And as they were doing so, they witnessed a carjacking. They laughed at the unfortunate situation. Kramer even videotaped the incident. They just stood there and watched, and the robbers sped off with the car. And they're about to go on and get something to eat when a policeman says... All right, hold it right there. In Seinfeld, Jerry says, what? The officer says, you're all under arrest. Jerry said, what for? The officer said, article 223-7 of the Lakeland County Penal Code. And Elaine said, we didn't do anything. The officer said, that's right. The law requires you to assist anyone in danger as long as it's reasonable to do so. George said, well, I've never heard of that. The officer says, it's new. It's called the Good Samaritan Law. Let's go. And all four of them wound up serving time. Goodness. Can you get thrown in the slammer for not being a good neighbor? Now, when we come to teachings of Jesus, especially when it's a parable and and what we're reading today locates itself in the parables of Jesus, you need to understand that things can be shocking. There are surprises, there are twists and turns, there are, are things that you would never expect, especially if somehow you can put yourself into the time period that Jesus was talking and how the Jewish people would have received many of his teachings. There are slippery slopes in the parables of Jesus. And when it comes to who is my neighbor, and and we know this story, the Good Samaritan, I warn you, Jesus just blows the doors off of any definition of neighbor that would limit the intensity and the scope of loving one's neighbor. This parable Is a challenge for us to take our relationship with God even more seriously. Because understand, folks, how we live with others is shorthand for how we're related to God. In other words, in our relationships with people, is there evidence that we love God? So let's unpack it this morning. Steve already read it. We're going to read it again, though, beginning in verse 25. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What's written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who's my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers. They stripped him and beat him and went off leaving him half dead. By chance, a certain priest was going down on that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, came to him, bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. He put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. My outline this morning is very simple. I'm going to carve this into two parts. Jesus, the neighbor, and the neighborhood of Jesus. So first, Jesus, the neighbor. We learn about Jesus, the neighbor, in this parable Now, I mentioned that parables can be slippery and they can be shocking and surprising. Mark Scott, who preached last year at our Red Hill Preaching Rally and who taught for years at Ozark Christian College, he defines a parable as a true-to-life comparison that can leave you dumbfounded but open to the new realities of the kingdom of God. Warren Wearsby, who taught for years over the radio, He said a parable functions in three ways, a picture, a mirror, and a window. First, we see the parable in our mind's eye. Then, it looks back at us. Finally, we view God's world through the lens of that parable. So, there's an image, a surprise, and a new way to view reality. I've probably shared this with you before, but I think it fits with this. Uh, A woman shuffles into the breakfast nook of their house in the morning. Her husband is sitting there drinking his coffee and reading the morning newspaper. And she says, guess what? He says, what? She said, I had a dream last night. You did? Well, what did you dream about? She said, I dreamed that someone very special to me presented me with a pearl necklace. You did, did you? Yes, I did. What do you make of that? He smiled and said, you just wait till tonight. Well, later on, after he goes to work, he comes home that evening with a gift in his hand. His wife is all smiles. She opens it up, and guess what it was? A book on how to interpret dreams. (laughs) Surprise! Parables often hold surprises for us, all right? They, They can be shocking, okay? There's always that element in a parable. And the surprise element here, the shock element, most of the times in the parable is located in the main characters. In this parable, who plays the role of God? Surprise. The Samaritan does. Right. And that's shocking. And notice, I'm not saying that's good because nobody among the Jews at that time would ever put the word good with the word Samaritan. No way. They were enemies. They called them half-breeds. When Assyria conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. and carried off the northern kingdom, the Jews of that time, they resettled the land with with non-Jewish people But Jews that were left and that eventually came back to that area intermarried with those heathens, those pagans. And so the Jews that maintained their identity in the southern kingdom considered them half-breeds. They prayed to God thanking Him that they were not Samaritans and asked Him not to bless the Samaritans. I mean, there's That's the enmity that existed between them. Now, why would Jesus put a Samaritan in the God role? I mean, everyone hearing the story for the first time, they would have known that, that the one that would stop and help would be an Israelite, would be a Jew. That would be the hero, not a Samaritan. I mean, after all, right in the previous chapter, Jesus was refused lodging for the night in a Samaritan village. That's when James and John, the sons of thunder, remember, said, Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume these people? Why would Jesus choose a Samaritan as the hero? Or or is it just just a Luke thing, since Luke authored the book? I mean, you go a little bit further into the the Gospel of Luke, into chapter 17, and Jesus cleansed ten lepers, okay, He said, go and show yourself to the priest, and they all take off. But one of them, realizing he's been cleansed, turned around to come back and say, thank you. And that one was a Samaritan. Read the story. Or you go over into the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote. Philip preaches the gospel to the Samaritans. Peter and John come to check it all out. And in Luke's typical fashion, He's a Gentile gospel writer. He's trying to show an inclusive God. It's one of the great missionary themes in the Bible. God's wide embrace of all people. And so he puts a Samaritan in the God role. But notice what the Samaritan does. He came. He saw, like his predecessors, but he took pity on him. He had compassion on him. Did you know that in the Gospels, the only one of whom it's ever said that he showed compassion outside of this account is Jesus? He's the only one. You can check out Matthew 18, 27, Luke 15, 20. But then this Samaritan breaks open his first century first aid kit which was oil and wine. He rearranges his schedule by taking the man to an inn and cares for him. He pays the innkeeper enough money to provide for the guy with the promise for more if the innkeeper has extra expenses. Now you know the lawyer gets the uncomfortable point because when Jesus poses the question in verse 36, which of the three proved to be a neighbor to the man, he doesn't bring himself to say the Samaritan. But rather he says what the one that showed mercy it's like he's not going to let the word Samaritan come off his lips the one who showed mercy and by the way in the Gospels the only one who shows mercy in the Gospels is Jesus now watch one more thing very carefully because it's evident in verses 36 and 37 Jesus didn't say that the guy in the ditch was the needy neighbor. Jesus didn't say that. That can be a a great emphasis, but that's not what Jesus asked. Jesus asked, which man was a neighbor to the unfortunate guy? What was the question the religious leader had asked? Who's my neighbor? Jesus says, who was a neighbor? To the man, to the unfortunate guy. Well, the neighbor's the one that showed mercy. Carl Bart said in one of his writings that if I let Jesus be my neighbor, he will love me and thereby awaken love in me for others. And once again, the gospel comes first. What he has done before is what we must do. Grace always precedes works, comes from the strangest places. Here it comes from a Samaritan. So Jesus, the neighbor, not only teaches us to love, but also loves us and thereby awakens love within us. Okay? So Jesus, was Jesus a neighbor? (laughs) He was the greatest neighbor. And we are to be neighbors to those in need. But let's make the turn and move from talking about the neighborhood of Jesus, or about Jesus and neighbor, to talking about the neighborhood of Jesus. Because make, make no mistake about it, there are lots of people in Jesus' neighborhood, right? Every tribe, every people, every tongue, every nation. The blind in his neighborhood received sight. The lame in his neighborhood, they walked the deaf in his neighborhood, they hear, the mute in his neighborhood talk, the sick in his neighborhood were healed, the demon-possessed in his neighborhood were set free, the uninformed in his neighborhood were taught, the morally wounded in his neighborhood were forgiven, the poor in his neighborhood were fed, The the ethnically diverse people in his neighborhood were included, Isaiah in the Old Testament prophesied saying of Jesus that a bruised reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out. So make no mistake about it, in Jesus' neighborhood, the bruised bruised reeds had spiritual duct tape wrapped around them. The smoldering wicks were fanned into full flame. Talk about revival. We need some... Flames fan fan full, don't we? And if we stay inside the parable, we see others in Jesus' neighborhood. How about the innkeeper? Is he in the neighborhood of Jesus? Well, sure he is. One of the early church fathers' origin believed that this innkeeper was Saul of Tarsus, later to become the Apostle Paul. I have no idea why he thought that. I don't see any connection. But are innkeepers in Jesus' neighborhood? Well, sure they are. In fact, I I do remember something about baby Jesus and no room at the inn. And how about these robbers that beat the guy and leave him half dead? Are they in the neighborhood of Jesus? I mean, they hardly play a complimentary role. And yet I remember about the Son of God being crucified between two thieves and to one of them, he said, Today you'll be with me in paradise. They're in the neighborhood too. I'm not saying they're saved, I'm saying they're in his neighborhood. But for our purposes, I'd like to stay just inside the main characters in the parable and divide them into two groups the marginalized people and the mainstream people. What do I mean when I say the marginalized? I mean those people that are considered insignificant, okay? It's represented by none other than the man going from Jerusalem to Jericho that fell among the thieves. The Jericho Road is 17 miles long, and in that 17 miles, it descends some 3,000 feet. So when it says they're going down to Jericho, they are, literally, geographically, they're going down. And I can't prove what I'm about to say, but you can't prove me wrong either, because I think it might be setting on towards evening or nighttime. And I'm even more sure that this man is traveling alone. Do anybody remember the nickname for this road? The Bloody Way. You can imagine why, can't you? Because there was all kinds of places for robbers and thieves like this to hide out, jump out, attack people, and do exactly what these men did to this to this Jewish man. And so you didn't want to travel that road by yourself. But I got a sneaking suspicion that this man was was by himself. And if I'm right, he's stupid. I'm, I, how else do you put it? It's not a smart choice to travel that road by yourself. Sometimes we have no one to blame for our troubles but ourselves. And and, and what rises within me is this, you big dummy. I mean, you made your own mess, now just sit in it. Now, do we ever see people like that in our world today who make, make their own messes and then Or look to us for help to get out of those messes? Well, yeah. Do do we have to love those people that are just plain careless? Are they in the neighborhood of Jesus? Yeah, they are. They are. But even if he has been careless, he still is genuinely needy because others took undue advantage of him. Sometimes we're messed up due to the actions of others. And here's the thing, it's hard to tell the difference between the genuinely needy and the con artist, isn't it? It's hard to tell. It takes real discernment to know the difference. We serve a lot of families here through our food pantry. Dave and Mike and Susie and and Ed Bryan and, and Charlene and Edith and all those that are involved with our food pantry, one day last week they served 15 families on one day. Wow. And I can tell you from experience and working with food pantries through the years, it's hard to tell if a person is genuinely needy or if they're just manipulating the system. And I would imagine that you that work with that experience that but I would rather err on the side of generosity than on the side of being stingy. And I think every one of our volunteers would say the same thing. Jesus spent lots of time with people like this man that had been injured. He's often criticized for eating with them. I mean, think of the social load that goes with eating with a person. And what Jesus did, and including the marginalized, the insignificant in his neighborhood, was that he made the globe into a village. And this emphasis matches quite well with what I found when you do a study of the word neighbor the word neighbor appears 225 times in the Old Testament and just 17 times in the New Testament and it means exactly what our English word implies it means someone standing near but a huge shift takes place from the Old Testament to the New Testament in the Old Testament The accent was clearly on the covenant community. In other words, you love your fellow Israelite. That was your neighbor. That that was how the word was used most often in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, though, the word neighbor is greatly expanded. It, It takes on the nuance of a fellow human being. In fact, half of the New Testament references to the word neighbor, eight to be exact, call us to love our neighbors As we love ourselves now if we really did that as the Samaritan did wouldn't those insignificant marginalized people feel included I think so but there's another twosome in Jesus neighborhood that we need to consider and I've left them till last because I believe they kind of interface with us because this is where the text gets real personal at least to me Jesus' Neighborhood also includes not just marginalized insignificant people, as people would think of them, but it also includes the mainstream people. We're talking about the priest and the Levite. They represent the religious, proud people. And they're the ones that's in the mirror staring back at us. Now, I used to didn't like these people, because didn't these religious proud people join with the Pharisees and Sadducees in murdering Jesus? Yeah. (laughs) And then I thought, wait a minute, they're religious leaders, and so am I. They trained others to be religious leaders, and so have I. So in light of the lawyer asking the question in the first place, aren't these two individuals prime players in this drama? Yeah. Both men are going down, right? Verse 31, by chance a certain priest was going down, which tells you he's going what direction? Towards Jericho, which means he's already been where? Jerusalem, being a priest, what was he doing in Jerusalem? Worshiping? Absolutely. Which means they've already been to worship, and the tragedy is it didn't make a difference. Right? Part of the priest's worship would have been to have recited the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. He would have recited that. He'll recite it again before he goes to bed, both the priest and the Levite. But the priest comes and beholds. The Levite beholds. Neither stops to help. And the rebuke of the story is that God seems to get more love out of an irreligious person than a religious person. Ouch. I mentioned Mark Scott earlier. Mark told a story one time about one of his students that was a member of the Impact Brass and Singers. How many of you remember them from Ozark? Yeah, some of you will. Uh, They no longer have that group at Ozark, but for years they would travel and we got to hear them different times. But this young man in Mark's class, he and another student on an Impact Brass trip stayed in the home of a church family for the night following a concert. And during a late night meal, the student asked the husband what he did for a living, which led to a long conversation about the man's former unemployment. And so the student remarked that he supposed that the man's church helped him during that needy time. Without any bitterness in the man's voice, he said, well, not exactly. He said that his family had asked for help from the church when the power company had shut off their electricity. But the church didn't give him any help. And the student asked, what did you do? The man replied that his neighbor helped. He went on to tell how evil and ungodly his neighbor was. But the night the power company shut off the power, his neighbor knocked at his door with an electrical cord that stretched over to his house. And he said, you can't live without electricity. God gets the right response out of the strangest places at times. But folks, this is us. We're the priests and the Levites. We, we well can be. But, but there's, this is comforting news to me because Jesus' neighborhood is large enough to include me too. And you. The mainstream, alright? The religious people. You know, Jesus spent an equal amount of time reclining at table with religious people as he did with the non-religious. The tax collectors and the harlots. Check it out. But Jesus' neighborhood includes the insignificant and the mainstream, the irreligious and the religious. He loves victims and he loves terrorists. He loves the church. He also loves the lost. And he winds up by saying, What? Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. I happen to believe that he wasn't kidding. Edward Everett Hale put it this way, I'm only one, but still I'm one. I can't do everything, but still I can do something. And because I can't do everything, I will not refuse to do the something I can do. Our vision here at New Hope Christian Church is to be today's help and tomorrow's hope. Who was that to the man in the ditch? The Samaritan was. But we need to be that for the people of our community. Today's help and tomorrow's hope. I don't know what decisions you may need to make based on a message like this, but whatever the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do, I just pray you'll do it. Whether it's a public decision, whether it's a private decision, whether there are changes in your life you need to make, make them. Take that next step. Do what the Lord is calling you to do. And most of all, as Jesus said, go and do likewise. Let's stand and sing.